0: you sure.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to one of the most unusual and inspiring shows on the radio, a show that shines a light on people that are living lives of purpose, passion, and adventure, and proves that we can all do it. It's called Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton, and that is Bill Schaefer right over there. And all we ask is that you give us a few minutes and see for yourself, as you'll hear from renowned experts, best-selling authors, and seemingly ordinary people that are living extraordinary lives. Growing Boulder is a radio show, a TV TV show, a magazine, a website, and more, all featuring three ingredients, hope, inspiration, and possibility.
2: Ah, and today they're brought to you by some pretty big names and some even bigger hearts. You'll meet writer and author Delia Efron, whose latest book deals with her sister Nora's death and what it took to overcome it. We'll talk to a woman in her 90s whose selfless act at the end of the Vietnam War saved tens of thousands of children. And if you like big-name musicians, you're here for the right show. His biggest hit came in 1976 with Dreamweaver. Yeah, Gary Wright is here. And do you like the B-52s? We'll talk to Fred Schneider about a new project he's working on. But first, we'll start with one of the most iconic musical performers of the 50s. Amazing people, amazing stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. On a day
0: like today
2: Mark, what are you doing? You know this song, don't you? We are swaying back yeah. and forth, everybody in the control room. I know that you know who sings this song. Yeah. I wonder how many people listening right now. Go ahead and guess. Well, just to give you an idea of how big this guy and this song was, Love Letters in the Sand was on the charts for more consecutive weeks than Elvis's Don't Be Cruel and more than the Beatles' Hey Jude. Can you believe that? And it's just one of top fifteen, top ten hits that this guy had.
1: You know, I can believe it because it's still He's good. Spectacular. Man, it, it is spectacular. It's <laughs> mellow and smooth like peanut butter over bread. <laughs> this song alone would be more than enough of a career for most anybody. Oh. But this is not an ordinary guy. No. He is also a movie star. He's been on Broadway. He's written fifteen books. He's been married for sixty years. He's also become a big time basketball Whoa. player. Yep. Pretty unusual for a guy who just celebrated his 80th birthday. He's an icon, folks, a talent, an all round great guy. We are happy to say hello to, yeah, you guessed it, Mr. Pat Boone. Hey, Pat, how are you? <laughs>
3: That's quite an intro. I will say that the peanut butter these days is crunchy peanut butter.
1: (laughs) We may not have any time left for the interview, but we got you one heck of a intro, didn't we? Nice.
3: Talk to you again sometime.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You you know, let's talk about this basketball thing first, because obviously, but we got a lot of great questions about your career. Uh, First of all, congratulations on turning eighty. How do you feel, and why are you playing basketball?
3: Well, of course, I, yeah, I did play in the senior games, uh, was it a year or 18 months ago? And, uh, and I was on a team in the 75 to 79 age bracket. And it was amazing to me how many guys there are in that bracket who still can move around the court and shoot and, uh, I mean, we had some competitive games. I played with a group out of Washington D.C., actually Virginia, called the Virginia Creepers, <laughs> and and, uh, and we won our first two games. And I did score both times, both games, and uh, and and gave the guy I was uh, defending against fits. But but I must say I had a brace on my right knee, and I paid a price. I was limping for a few days just because. I've run all the meniscus cartilage out of, well, really both knees. But the left knee, I had a partial replacement. It's great. And I'm still playing singles tennis, but I'm not playing much basketball now because I realize I just can't move as quickly on the court. I could if it weren't for the knee. I'm aerobically fit. but So that's a very long answer to a very simple question.
2: You know, Pat, there are no radio shows in this country that would refuse to have you on as a guest. You're such a great, compelling guy, but there's a specific reason that we wanted you on Growing Bolder because mm-hmm. you've done such an amazing job. At the age of 80, you're vital, you're relevant, you're involved, you're smart, you're all over everything, Pat. What is what is your secret? What is your philosophy that for aging that keeps you I mean you found the fountain of youth well
3: I think it's crossword puzzles <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot of crossword puzzles it's good brain exercise I mean I'm kidding but, um, but there's truth to that as well but look um, a, um, I tell people I've been ask, they've been asking me for, for I don't know 40 years at least why do you look younger than we know you are and act younger and I say well three things. It's lots of milk, lots of exercise, and a clean conscience. And, of course, the, the milk has to do with diet, and I switched to low-fat a long time ago. And um, But just the good food, I mean, exor- uh, and then exercise self-explanatory. But then the clean conscience, and people look at me quizzically about that, and uh, and I say, look, my conscience gets dirty like anybody's, but I know where to go to get mine cleaned. And there's a physiological as well as spiritual and emotional benefit to that because people, uh, you know, by and large, go through life carrying guilt complexes. I like the joke of the psychiatrist who said to his patient, who was really messed up, look you don't have a guilt complex you 're guilty mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's not complex and so physiological effects diseases all come from anxiety, fear, and sometimes guilt and I just and that 's where my faith comes in because I can confess my faults whenever I need to, and then know. That they're forgiven and I can start fresh, and, and I I can do that on a daily basis. <clears throat> so, you know, having a having a healthy, clean self-image, not because of anything I've done, but because what's been done for me by God, uh, and then having a healthy body and a good wife. <laughs> I mean, Solomon says in Proverbs that that's after all of, of his incredible blessings and largesse. But that it boiled down to that. That's the secret of the happy life is to have something good to eat, something good to do, and have a good wife or husband.
1: Man, you knocked the cover off that ball. Folks, we are talking to Pat Boone, the iconic singer. Actor, movie star, basketball player, all-around great guy. And Bill mentioned you you in the same breath as Elvis and the Beatles, and you just talked about living with a clean conscience, doing things the right way. You know, current names that come to uh, example, Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber. It seems like it's hard to become as famous in your business as you have been without being controversial. Somehow you've avoided controversy, you've done it the right way, and you've still risen to the top. I mean, we need more like you.
3: Well, remember, I came up at a different time. I, I have a book that I've written in the last, well, couple of years, called Pat Boone's America, 50 Years. And uh, the reason I did it, the, I'd already written other biographical or autobiographical books, and um, the publisher convinced me that it had been at least 10 years since the one before, so I must have had other experiences. Of course I had, and but I didn't think it was worth a book. And uh But I'd agreed to do it if I could tell my story, my career and life story, overlying the changes in culture in America uh, since I began. When I began, it was okay to be a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, Elvis and I were competitors, and he was sort of the rebel, and he was winning big by sort of breaking through some taboos. I was the guy, like Mr. America, you know, obeying all the rules, going to college, getting married, having kids and uh, and living a clean life, and kids identified with both of us, but for different reasons. But it was okay for me to be um, uh, a, quote, nice guy. I shrank from that word uh, because that s- seemed uncommercial, and yet I resisted the impulse to, um, to try to be like Elvis. And uh, of course, he was an immense success, but he's been gone 30 or 40 years. <laughs> And uh, and I'm still going strong. So there's something to be said for sticking to the uh, the tried and true principles and morals that have always spelled health and happiness. And um, and I regret, I really hurt for these kids who are coming along, who really do believe that the way to be successful is to break every taboo, stick their tongues out, give you the finger, do drugs, uh, rebel. And, uh, and, and, of course, other kids, unfortunately, find that exciting, and they'll buy the records and go to the movies and, and, and be followers, and, and it's uh, really the, kind of the blind leading the blind.
2: You know, Pat, in our in our last minute or so, you know, the you've been through it all. You've seen so many different things, and you just talked about the young kids t- when you were twenty, twenty five, thirty, and you thought about an eighty year old. Wow, there were not many role models out there uh, like you are now. What what is it like to be eighty, and, and what is it like to be on the cusp of changing the stereotype of what that means? <laughs>
3: I tell you, it is. It is. I cannot really accept or quite comprehend it. Not only am I 80, but still going strong. I just rode three miles on my bike this morning. I alternate between bike and swimming in the morning, and then I work out in the gym in the afternoons, and then play tennis, singles tennis, three sets on Friday. So I mean, I cannot accept that I'm anybody's stereotype of of 80. Uh, but, but then again, my my youngest daughter, my baby daughter, is a grandmother. <laughs> and so that that uh, makes an impression on me. That's also hard to comprehend. The other girls, the older three, are not grandparents yet, but, but baby daughter, Laurie, who's 56, I think. Uh, and she's got three grandkids and a fourth on the way. And I don't know what's wrong with the other grandkids. But, uh, but at least uh, now, Shirley and I are great-grandparents, courtesy of our, our uh, youngest daughter.
2: Well, Pat, listen, keep doing what you're doing, and thanks so much for setting that bar high for the rest of us to follow. Keep active and relevant, and keep shaping the image of what's possible later in life. Our thanks to the iconic, amazing, incredible Pat Boone. Next, he's the front man to one of the greatest party bands ever. It's Fred Schneider of the B 52s. This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio. Preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com/tv for program listings and where to watch. Oh, yeah, this is Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And after 35 years and 20 million records, the B-52s are still flying high. And a big part of the reason why, Mark, is their bombastic frontman, Fred Schneider.
1: You know, we were thrilled to find out that he is still crazy, still motivated, still as creative as ever. But do you know much about his background, how the Bs came to be? Well, you're about to find out. Hop in our Chrysler. Bill, put the top down. (laughs) Let's cruise, and we'll tell you all about it.
2: It was 1989 when the B-52s released their biggest selling single ever. Did you know it almost never happened? The record label didn't
5: think Love Shack would be a hit. Radio wouldn't touch it except for college radio and alternative. You sure? They thought it was too weird, and I, I, thought, um, I thought, I think this is the most accessible, one of the most accessible things we've done. I got me a Chrysler.
2: Fred Schneider was right. After 13 years of toil and struggle, Love Shack made the B-52s an overnight sensation.
5: And
2: Schneider was suddenly considered one of the most unique performers in music, knocking at the door of stardom. It was a sweet victory for a man who for most of his life was seen by friends as a disappointment. They said to my mother,
5: oh Carol, it's so sad that Freddie dropped out of college. (laughs) Then, you know, they're asking for tickets to shows later on.
2: To be honest, nobody was more surprised by their success than the B-52s themselves. Kate Pearson, Cindy Wilson, her late brother Rick, and Keith Strickland. The whole band,
5: we just, the Bs, we just took a chance. We we lived life in Athens, and you only had hopes. You didn't really, we never thought knew what we could do.
2: In fact, they all did other things. Fred was a custodian and became a meal delivery coordinator for the Georgia Council on Aging.
5: We all had like, jobs. Uh, Keith and Rick worked at the bus station, Cindy worked at the Whirly-Q Lunchette making peachy burger melts, and Kate worked, as she said, at the local
2: rag. And were you one of those guys that had that dream while you were doing that? That man, maybe our band can have a hit record. Now it was like, hey, this is fun.
5: Because in Athens, there wasn't anything to do at the time. It wasn't a music mecca. We just did it because we liked it. Rock, rock, rock,
2: rock. Doing it because they liked it, it's what drives Fred to this very day.
5: Like I say, thank God for Love Shack. Um, I'll never get sick of it.
2: <laughs> and now the Superions.
5: Yes, and we're going to sell millions.
2: You see, Fred has started a whole new band. Oh, he's still in the B-52s, and they'll always be his main gig, but he also started the Superions. What do
5: you hope happens with this album and this group? Mm -hmm. You know, like Million Sellers, you know, World Stardom, just basic, whatever, you you know, person in the band wants.
2: Some critics think they're already on their way, with titles like... Who threw
5: that ham at me? In the head, fruit cake. It could kill your dad,
2: it's fruit cake. And their biggest project to date,
0: Bat baby, go, go. baby, go, 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 go.
5: baby, go, yeah. baby. I just like to write. Um I consider myself more of a writer than a singer or whatever. And um, working with Dan and Noah here with the Superions is like a fun side project for things I can do I can't do with the band because the band works all four of us write together. And with the Superions, I write all the lyrics, and Dan and Noah do the music, and it just works.
2: Something else to keep in mind. Are you ready? Fred is now in his 60s.
0: You're right.
2: Do you know that you are breaking the stereotype of what people think happens as you grow older?
5: Oh, I know. When I think about my grandparents, they were dressing <laughs> they were dressing like, well, the end is near, so I'm going to just wear a house coat or uh, old pants and things. So I don't know. You just have to think young. Do people tell
2: you, Fred, when are you
5: going to grow up? I don't no, I, I'm successful being a nut like I am, so who cares? Are you happy? Yeah, I'm very happy.
2: And are you having fun?
5: Um, well, look at our videos.
2: So whether it's reliving the past with the B-52s or taking a shot at the future with the Superions, Fred Schneider still has the passion, still has the spark, and has no plans to change a thing.
5: I've accomplished whatever, except I'm not a, you know, top movie star, but you know, I, I can live with that.
2: You never know. You who's never watching. know. You never know who's watching.
5: That's true. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
2: Fred Schneider of the B-52s. Growing bolder means taking control of your health, and many times the best way to start with that is through fitness.
1: In our Road to Recovery Minute today, our leading neurosurgeon, Dr. Robert Masson, explains how simply getting into shape can change your life in more ways than you can even imagine.
6: Fitness is, is critical not only to prevention but to recovery and ultimately the reason we do these surgeries, the reason people need spine surgery, is because they are losing functional abilities in their life. The more fit they are, the better the odds that they're going to recover at a higher level and achieve the goals that they have and the reasons why they want the surgery in the first place. One of the opportunities that I think we try to, to teach people is no matter what their lifestyle choices will affect the extent to which we ultimately have to do stuff to them. So you know somebody who allows themselves to gain more weight than they should, someone who doesn't maintain their strength around their core, they're increasing the odds that ultimately they're going to need a bigger surgery or a bigger correction. You know I think the most common thing we deal with at least in our mid-adult population that we treat is we've got motivated productive people working hard lives, hard jobs, hard family infrastructures, but they don't give themselves that 20 minutes a day, five to six days a week, to prepare their body for the stress of life. And, and, and that preparation translates into injury and injury prevention every time.
1: You know, folks, there are a lot of questionable ways to spend your time, but one thing everybody agrees on is get in shape. Get up and get moving because it can only serve you well as you age.
2: Up next, writer Delia Efron talks about how the death of her famous sister Nora affected her life.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com.
1: You're listening to Growing Boulder with Mark and Bill. You know, one thing we both have a whole lot of admiration for is somebody that looks at the world, who looks at life and sees it from a slightly unusual perspective, someone who helps us see the things that we have in a slightly different way. And our next guest certainly has that gift, and she has been sharing it with the world in her plays, in her movies, and in her books.
2: Oh, she is a best-selling author, screenwriter, and playwright, and you're going to recognize some of these titles like You've Got Mail or Sleepless in Seattle. And she's written over a dozen books, the most recent being Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog, etc. Let's say hi to Delia Efron. How are you, Delia?
7: Fine. How are you? Man, it's
2: it's great to have you here. I know the book is really getting a lot of run because it's kind of a collection of essays that deal with, I guess, pretty much everything we deal with in life. Tell us about yeah, sister, those are mother, my major food groups, <laughs> sister, mother, husband, and dog. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what's in the book.
7: I, I you know, I started the book started because um, I was so close to my sister Nora and we were collaborators and I was born a sister I'm second and she was an amazing older sister and she always said we shared half a brain and if (laughs) I was so lost after she died and she was such a force that it seemed almost unimaginable that she could die um so that I started to write every day. It was sort of what got me through the day. I would go into my office and write, and it was a way to be together and make sense of what it meant to be for us to be sisters, to lose her, and I think in general what it is to be a sister, which is such an uncivilized and crazy relationship. I uh, I mean, my first memory of Nora is that she bit into a tomato in such a perfect way as to squirt juice in my eye. (laughs) And (laughs) I think I just started to uh, sort of go back over our history together and understand it. And then the next thing I knew, I was writing about my 20s and how um, I blew my 20s, because when I was 10, I saw a movie called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And after that, all I wanted to do was move to the backwoods and make flapjacks for a wild man. (laughs) <laughs> so then I'm next thing I know I'm writing about my dog you know I mean it just one thing led to another
1: it sounds like it was cathartic in a way helping you deal with the, the things that so many of us have to deal with that, that all of us have to deal with if we live long enough
7: I think that the great gift of of being being a writer is that you get to write about what happens to you and then you get to some other place because of it or you I mean and I really have a rule about I mean, if you're going to write a memoir, if you're going to write anything, tell the truth. Uh, That's the most important thing. And uh, otherwise, why bother?
1: Well, folks, we're talking with Delia Efron, and she mentioned uh, her, her sister, sister Nora, who, of course, was the, you know, the the renowned director and writer Nora Efron. Um, uh, you guys were not that far apart. Nora died at the age of uh, seventy one, I believe. Was there sibling sibling rivalry going up growing up? Did you guys always get along as collaborators as well as you did in adulthood?
7: Well, we didn't always get along. No, I mean we sisters don't always we certainly didn't i mean but i worshipped her when i was a kid the way you worship an older sister i just wanted to do everything she did and um but as we started to collaborate uh and we each got better at what we did um it got we would really fight she used to say delia if you tell me this one more time i'm going to scream because i'm a relentless person and i would be so worried she wouldn't make the change i wanted her to make and then so i would just keep after her i mean we had we had fights and and when we were adapting my book hanging up which um was my story of the death of my well it's it's a novel it's my first novel based on the death of of my father um and it was uh you know when we worked on that it was too hard to work on it because it was it was my father was it her father and i think there's some things you can really collaborate on and there are things that end up you get into trouble about and i tried to really i wrote a lot about collaboration because i think it's one of the most important things in life you know we as friends we collaborate on life i don't leave the house without calling one of my girlfriends up for advice and in marriage we collaborate on raising kids and and yet there're things that are so personal that you can't collaborate on and you have to know what those things are so no it was not always easy
2: and as if it was as if it wasn't tough enough there were four efron sisters all of you became writers you and Nora of close are so close. You collaborated together. I'm sure all of your sisters kind of have that bond. And, you know, I, I think it, it, you, you, the book is a great metaphor for all of us because it is about you and your family and the truth. But it touches on all of us who have this family dynamic and who suffer from losses and, and have arguments and disagreements and parents that aren't perfect. Yeah,
7: I, I mean— what was the, what was your dinner table like? Do you remember? Because I began to think when I wrote this book that the dinner table was such an important part of our lives. It was, you know, my parents really wanted to raise writers, and they succeeded. They got four daughters to become writers. But every time I said something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. <laughs> and my, I was expected to bring my stories. I mean, not expected, but, you know, it was where... I told the stories of what happened to me that day, and I learned to be a writer that way by I learned how to tell a story and how to make people laugh and don 't you think you did you have a, a powerful dinner table in your family? Not so
1: much. you know we had all different schedules. It was important we came together a little bit, but uh, you know my dad was burnt out uh, you know we, we kind of were on our own in terms of you know trying to amuse ourselves and motivate ourselves. Uh, as a father, I was much more like your father. I engaged my daughters every night at dinner.
2: So, Delia, let me throw this at you. We've talked about, and we all get how important the mother, the sister, the father is, but dog? Dog. Oh,
7: my gosh. Do you have a dog?
2: I do have a dog. I love my dog. If you
7: have a dog. First of all, I got a dog when I was a stepmother, okay? So... I think every step parent out there. This is my advice: get yourself a dog because it's very <laughs> important to have someone in the house that loves you. So I got this dog, and I fell in love. I mean, and that's what happens. I mean, a dog turns you into a nut, and um, it was really. Uh, I I really had to write about it because I th- I think that having a dog is a totally transforming experience and. Um, there's there's something so powerful about them. And I got so cuckoo that, of course, I even had a pet psychic over because I was writing a movie about a pet psychic. So I had this very nice woman come over and tell me what my dog was thinking. <laughs> and um, my dog, she said that my dog was very worried about my left thigh. <laughs> so, um that was really amazing to me because it, it just so happened that I'd had something taken off my left thigh that week, which turned out to be fine, but I was waiting for results. And it was under my blue jeans. There was no way she could have known about it. There was no way the dog could have known about it, I didn't think. So... I was just blown away by that, but anyway, all I want to say is that turning you know having a dog turn me into a nut, and there is something about them which is so powerful that it's almost impossible to describe if you don't have one
2: well, family and pets may be the only place that we can find unconditional love, and it sure is different with the pet than it is with the family members. Well,
7: we can find unconditional love with the pet, but we don't find it in our in our families really, and it, I think that's why that they are really the fulfillment of a kind of Imagine what you imagine love can be in its purest form is probably having a dog. There are 77 million dog owners in the country. The world is really, dogs are. Dogs are all over New York City, by the way. I mean, you cannot believe how many dogs there are in this city.
2: You know, no, I, I wonder, Delia, though, you're such an interesting writer. I think it's because you really help us all feel like we're your best friend. Even in this interview, you've done that. You open your life in a way that, that helps us all and, and really relates to us. The book is called Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog. Do check out check her out at com. What a fun interview. Up next, meet a true hero, one of the greatest advocates for orphans in the world who's still making a difference in her 90s. This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest.
0: My stood hard when abstract threats do noble too
2: You're listening to Growing
1: Boulder Radio. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. And time now for our surviving and thriving interview. You know, with the right support and the right attitude, it is possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges but to actually thrive in the aftermath. And our next guest is a great example of that. Her story should really end that little debate that goes on in all of our minds once and for all about whether one person really can make a difference. Because if it wasn't for her, there would be a whole lot of people who simply would not be here today.
2: Yeah, and that's no exaggeration either, Mark. Let's go back to April of 1975 when this woman... Made a life or death decision that changed everything, not just for her. She was in Saigon. It was just about to fall when she helped over 200 kids get out of there in a dramatic air rescue called Operation Baby Lift. It was an act of heroism that continues to this day through an organization she founded called Halo, Helping and Loving Orphans. Let's say hi to Betty Tisdale. How are you, Betty?
8: I'm fine. How are you?
2: You know what? I hope you don't mind us asking you this, but I had heard not long ago that you suffered a maybe a mild stroke or something. How are you doing? I
8: do, oh, I'm doing fine, except that I use a cane once in a while.
2: D- does anything keep you down?
8: I hope not. <clears throat> and how old are you these days, Betty? Oh, I'm going to be 92 on September 30th.
1: Just amazing, and, and folks, if you you've ever wondered if helping others helps yourself, she's the perfect example. Because Betty, you have an amazing anniversary that you're celebrating this year—50 years of volunteering. Just think how rich you'd be—you would be if you got paid for all that work, huh? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, I,
8: I I thrive on people understanding what we're trying to do and sending donations.
1: So tell us in your words, what are you trying to do what, what What's your mission?
8: Well, my mission in the beginning was just to help the children of Vietnam, and then it went on for other countries. We went to Bogota and we went to um the Middle East, to Afghanistan, places like that, and every place that I went, they just they needed more in Bogota. Uh, it, it was the same thing. A little baby died in my arms because she couldn't get a heart operation. She was only about six months old. Beautiful child.
2: Uh, th- that's just one remembrance in a whole lifetime of, of changes in people's lives that Betty Tisdale has made. And, Betty, you make a very interesting point about volunteering, and, and I think that's one of the reasons we wanted you on the show today. You are so... Inspiring! Your story is almost beyond belief, but you believe that it takes somebody else to inspire us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. In your case, your whole story happened because of a guy named Tom Dooley.
8: Exactly, and Tom Dooley was the—he was the most uh, energetic, giving person that I ever had ever met. I met him in uh, New York. I read his book called "Deliver Us from Evil." In fact last night I was having dinner with people and they were going over to Laos. I said, I don't never hear of anyone going to Laos anymore And I said that's where Tom Dooley started his first hospital. And they were trudging through the jungles to get to his one room hospital where all the patients were lying on the floor. Unbelievable.
1: The power of an example. So you you saw what he was doing, and it inspired something in you. And you know, Betty, we often talk. We talk all the time, in fact, about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. You were a secretary when 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 you were transformed, when you were changed, when you were inspired. What is it about you that enabled you uh, to take the chance to have the vision to truly believe that you could make a difference?
8: Well, I guess I I couldn't believe that there were people in the world children in the world that no one had helped because I grew up in Pittsburgh and my father died when I was nine and my mother was left with five children and she had tuberculosis and all of a sudden you know people were helping us and of course the children my sisters and I were were farmed out to other people and other people took care of us and that's what we're trying to do now. I say we, and I get the help of so many people from all
2: over the world. And, you know, Betty, just like Dooley did for you, you are doing for who knows how many other people setting the inspiration, being that example. Uh, Nobody would have looked one way or the other 25 years ago if you would have said, I think I've had enough, I'm going to retire. But here Uh you are in your 90s, and you're still making a difference?
8: Oh, I'm not going to retire. <laughs> I don't think I can. I I uh, have raised my children, and they're all successful, I think. And, they, and I love them very much. And I think that it's something that's in me that wants to help other children. And I just now, um, I've been to the Middle East, and I've been to Bogota, and I've been to Vietnam and Laos and so on. And I just keep looking at the map and thinking of all the children that are floating around the world that need help. And the funny thing that happened the other day, I got a phone call from a woman by the name of Teresa. And she said, I don't know whether you know me or not, but I'm from Africa. And she said, I thought maybe you could give me some ideas on how I can raise money, or how I can help the children there. And I said I've been thinking about Africa, thinking so much, especially with this new d- d- disease that's in the world today, Ebola, and people are dying so fast. And I said I'd like to talk to you, and maybe there's some way I could get to Africa, and just help some of these children that are dying over there. Well, you all- so I met her. I met her the other day. Wonderful woman.
2: So it goes on. Even in her 90s, she is stepping up, finding a need, and being one of those people, not asked to, not expected to fulfill a need, but somebody doing it because she believes it's the right thing to do. It's the power that's inside all of us to get out there and use our lives to make a difference. For Betty, it was the orphans of Vietnam and then the children of the world. For you, what's it going to be? What is it in your heart that you can make a difference in doing? Betty, thanks so much.
0: I've just closed my eyes again. Climbed aboard the Dreamweaver train.
2: Up next, remember the song Dreamweaver? But well, we're going to talk to the amazing Gary the Wright. That's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at com slash podcasts. Well, you know this song. Everybody knows Dreamweaver. It was a multi-platinum hit. But do you know the guy who wrote it and performed it? You should, because he's a visionary songwriter, fabulous singer, world-class performer, and really, Mark, nothing less than a musical pioneer who has left an indelible mark on the music we all listen to. Yeah, no argument here, but
1: here is something that really makes his story exceptional and well worth paying attention to. While he would love to be recognized for his music, just as important to him is lending some spiritual guidance to any or all who are searching for meaning and purpose in this life, and that's what the song Dream Weaver is actually all about. His story is inspiring, it's enlightening, and fortunately he's now written a book about it called, what else, Dream Weaver. Let's say hello to the always interesting Gary Wright. Hey Gary, how are you?
9: Very well, how
1: are you? Well, we're great. Thanks so much for your time, and let's get right with it. What made you decide to write this book, and why do it now?
9: Well, I had written so many songs over the years and I, and have made so many albums that I really wanted to do something a little different. Uh, and I I thought about the process of writing a book because people had come to me and said, you know, you've had a, a lot of very rich experiences that you need to share with the world and you should write a book. And I thought, yeah, but, you know, I don't know if I could write a book. And then as I thought about it more and more... I realized that it was the same creative process that you write a book with. It's, you're tapping into the same part of your consciousness. And I thought, I, I'm sure I could do this." And I started to write, and you know, kind of a, a proposal to, to pass around to publishing companies, and I landed a deal with uh, Tarcher Penguin, and uh, started to write, and they said, "No, we want you to write it. You don't have to use a ghostwriter," which, which I was thrilled, because that wouldn't have been in my own voice. And I just went through my life and the, the, the major decisions that I made that caused things to happen for me and the events. And I always felt that I had been guided to do certain things because things would always come out. You know, things would come in the mail or whatever opportunities would arise. And I thought, wow, I never thought I could do that or that would happen to me. And I started to really then get into the spiritual path especially through my friendship with George Harrison.
2: You, you know, Gary, most people need a ghostwriter because nothing happened in their lives to write about. Yours, <laughs> uh, your story is amazing, Gary. It's one thing after another. And you brought up George Harrison. You, you you recorded with him, but you were good friends with him, too. Is he the one that introduced you to Eastern spirituality?
9: He was. He was. He When I first met him and I played on All Things Must Pass, he right away picked up on the fact that I, I was definitely into... The Eastern philosophy—not not that I had known anything about it—because he really was my mentor, and he mentored me through that entire initial period. And um, it was—it was a great, great experience to have him—a friend like him. He was so different than any of the other friends I have. Uh, you know, he was just amazingly creative in all the things he did, and, and a wonderful human being, very compassionate, very funny. He had a great sense of humor. He loved gardening, which we shared together, and. So we had a lot in common.
1: Folks, we're talking with Gary Wright, who has written a new book called Dream Weaver. And Gary, most of the times, writing a book is its own reward. You get so much out of it. Fortunately, this is a great book for everybody else. But was it cathartic, in in a sense, as you revisited your life? Uh, What did you learn about yourself uh, as you wrote the book?
9: I think I learned that, you know, in many ways, I've been blessed with having a quote-unquote "charmed life" where opportunities have been presented to me, and and I've been able to, you know, meet such incredible human beings and to collaborate with them musically. And I just felt that I've always been guided, you know, in one way or another toward specific things that would enhance my life the way it, it has. But I think the most important thing was that it. I realized that it it wasn't the platinum albums and the awards and the and the big concerts and stuff like that, that gave me the satisfaction. It was the ability to be able to uplift people, especially like when I would do concerts and when I still do concerts, people will come back after the show and when I'm signing autographs and tell me their own little story about Dreamweaver, how it changed their lives. Several of which people were with stories about people who were just about ready to end their lives for one reason or another. And they said, but I played your music and I decided not to do it. And I thought, wow. Now thats that justifies the whole thing of, of being an artist. It's not the fame or anything like that. It's the ability to have helped another human being and saved their lives. And I feel very blessed that I was given that role in this lifetime, to be able to, to have done that through my music.
2: You know, Gary, I can see how you can look back and say that, but when, all the stuff that you went through, man, I, I cannot believe that you didn't become a mega, mega star. I mean, even, I was a huge fan of Spooky Tooth. Are you kidding? Mike Harrison and Mick Jones, how did that not become huge?
9: I, well, you know, it's one of those things, that, you know, you have those examples of great artists I've run across in my life who never, their career never happened for one reason or another. And, you know, it's, it's, that's where I believe, you know, the law of karma comes into effect, because maybe they had to learn the lesson of being more patient or, or whatever that particular thing was, maybe it wasn't meant to happen. I'd, success is something that just doesn't plop into your lap, I, and I I re- wrote that in my in my book. It's something that you have to work on and 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 hone in on and and purify over different lifetimes. And then all of a sudden, when that moment's there, I mean, yeah, it's true what you mentioned before about about uh, you know mega 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 star. So I often think about that in my career. Why wasn't I a mega 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 star instead of just a (laughs) megastar but I think again with me it was a situation that I had to grow if had I not had I just rushed into you know huge stardom I probably wouldn't have learned the lessons that I needed to learn and not been have been able to grow the way this life gave me the opportunity to do so I feel in a way blessed that I was able to learn those lessons while at the same time having a successful career.
1: And all you've learned, Gary, gives you a foundation for the future, which many people in their 70s, as you are now, don't have. What, what have you learned about aging and, and, and your perception of, of how we can remain vital uh, and, and significant as we get older? What can you share with us that you've learned?
9: Well, I've always been a firm believer of positive thinking, uh, and also, you know, living a healthy life is very important, because if you don't look after your body when in the, in the younger years— it'll start giving you trouble in the older years. So I've, I've been pretty conscious about how I the kind of foods I eat. I exercise regularly. That's important. And I meditate. Meditation is a big part of it, too, because it, it kind of keeps you balanced and it keeps you centered and it allows you to live in the moment. I think what happens is that as we get older, we spend a lot more time in the past or the future and very little time in the present. And that's why all of a sudden it seems like, wow, 10 years just flew by. But I think when you're a little kid, you're saying, now what are we going to do next, Mom? What are we going to do next? You're living always in the present moment. So time seems to appear that it's actually stretched out, and it's, it's, you're living more in the moment, whereas when you're older it doesn't happen that way. So it's practicing, mind, I think, you know, modern psychology calls it now mindfulness. In, in India they call it practicing the presence of God. In other words, being in tune with that consciousness so that you have, like, you're walking through life with somebody that's holding your hand and you're constantly having a dialogue with. And I think that's important. That's, how, that's been my kind of success story, you know, on, on how I've you know, learned how to, to age with, with dignity rather than just be frightened and think, oh, my God, I'm getting near the end of my life.
2: Didn't we tell you this guy was amazing? Gary Wright's all that. You've got to read the book. You won't believe the things he went through. Almost got killed at the age of 16. He struggled through youth. He was on Broadway and worked his way now in his 70s, still writing, still recording. Check it out. Gary Wright. It's at thedreamweaver.com. And the Dreamweaver's still alive. Thanks, Gary. Dream. If you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country, and we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life.
1: Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingboulder.com/slash-subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter.
2: And don't forget to. Follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here.
4: Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
0: Joe